You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with John Fedro to discuss the basics of mobile home investing and how real estate investors can take advantage of this low-cost strategy. John is a successful real estate investor specializing in mobile homes since 2002. The mobile home space is one that I've been interested in myself, and I plan to get involved with it soon. I hope this episode helps new investors see an alternate way to get started in real estate investing with less money down. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. With me today, I have John Fedro. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, that's me. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. This is great. Before we dive into the whole world of mobile home investing, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. A lot of mistakes. Mistakes in our work. Got started a long time ago. I can't believe that the time has gone by this fast. I fell into mobile homes. I sort of failed into mobile homes. I'll freely admit that. I mean, I'm glad I failed into them, but I didn't want anything to do with these. I never lived in a mobile home. Didn't know you could invest in these. And my first mobile home, it was a mobile home in a park. I'll tell you a quick little story. And I had a, I, I had a, I had a course. I had a course that I had on a friend's bookshelf. I picked it up and it was like a get rich quick kind of thing overnight. And I read it and I'm like, I can do this. Like, this is great. I was working just a mundane job. I knew that there was so much more I could do. And I had this fire in me and I had all this potential, but I didn't want to go to school and I didn't want to wait years to start my career and, and work my way up. So real estate investing, when I saw this book, I'm like, this is what I want. I read the book a couple of times in a weekend. It was more binder, of course. And I did everything that it asked me to do. And I spent my small life savings of a couple grand at the time, knocking on doors, sending out letters. This was in Florida, in the Tampa Bay area, where at the time you could make money just cleaning a window and reselling it. And, and I wasn't doing anything. It took three months and I didn't do any deals. And I was really busting my butt. I was young and I probably looked like I was 15, but I was really putting in a lot of effort. Went through my money and somebody that called me for my very first deal, it was a mobile home eight grand she wanted. I didn't know it was a mobile home. I was too green to even ask that. I'm like, eight grand for a three bedroom? What am I doing? I must have my lucky day <laughs> or something. So I just drive there and it's a park and I zigzag through the park and I realize it's a community. And there's this wave of emotion as I'm going to pull into her car or into her home driveway. And I just get wave of emotion and I get sick and I throw up on the side of the road. Luckily, I open my door. And I'm just looking at myself in the mirror after this, like, what should I do? Should I run away? And I ended up going into the home. The first deal, we, she was asking 8000 And remember, I spent my life savings. I was working at an Altel phone store at the time and doing valet cars. And I didn't, just didn't have any money. So I negotiated. I talked to her. There were issues with the homes, but, or with the home. But we went from 8000 down to 3000 and then like in the course of a couple hours, and then I legitimately didn't have that three grand. So I paid her 10 monthly payments, starting with the first month of 300 bucks a month. And I made that deal work and it opened my eyes and it was, I was embarrassed. When I first got started in this business, in my first year, I had 14 deals, but it took me months and months to actually talk to, like to actually tell other investors what I was doing because I was embarrassed about this. Nowadays, you say you're a mobile home investor and it's like a cool thing or whoa, you're hipsters. 
But back then it was like, you got, I, I thought I was going to be laughed at, but I really wasn't. People were like, oh, here, I don't want these. You do something with them. I've been throwing these away. And so it just, I guess back then it just, it's, I, I started with mobile homes. I failed into mobile homes and purchased some on park, some inside of the park, some on their own little private land. And then I usually sell them on payments. I rent out some, but I usually sell them on payments, some I sell for cash. And that's what I've been doing for about 18 years. Three years ago, I got started buying the entire parks. I kind of graduated up to that level. It took me long enough, but that's what I'm doing. I added that into my what I'm doing now. So I'm kind of doing in parks, on land, the whole parks, and it's just mobile homes. I was embarrassed. Now I love them. So are you doing anything other than mobile homes or mobile home parks? Some of my portfolio is is single family homes. I got rid of any multifamily that I have besides my parks. Whenever I've gone away from mobile homes, and I've been doing this for 18 years, I've done different things with single family homes, or I've gone after like hurricanes, I've chased, you know, doing properties there. Whenever I deviate from mobile homes, I get my hand slapped, like lose money, lose credit. I just get I'm following whatever kind of is going. Like I'm, I get greedy about something like, oh, people are making money over here. Let me, let me try this that I know nothing about. And that's when I've gotten burned. And I say burned, but I mean, I put myself in those situations. That's when I've gotten a lesson. So yeah, most of my portfolio now and most of everything I'm looking at is either a mobile home in a park on land or it's the entire park. And so, I mean, just to your point, that's exactly the uh, shiny object syndrome, right? I mean, as entrepreneurs, we get lured into all of these different shiny objects, whether it's real estate, whether it's stock investing, whether it's you know anything really, side hustles, you get pulled in the direction of whatever the newest, shiniest thing is. And it sounds like, I mean, you're a successful investor. It even happens to you. It happens to everybody. So if you're a new investor listening to the show today, don't be discouraged because you want to go after all these things. But listen to what John's saying is how he's focused on mobile homes and he's done really, really well. So when you deviate from that, you have trouble. So talk to us a bit about what your personal portfolio looks like today. We just talked about what types of properties it is. How many units are there? I don't know how many deals I've done in the past. I've been doing this for 18 years. My portfolio now is mostly mobile homes, either in people's parks, in my own parks, or on private pieces of land, or working with other folks I'm working with around the country. Most of what I do is selling on payments. I am dabbling more with renting some mobile homes out in certain situations, but most everything is selling on payments. So technically, for a lot of these properties, I'm just a note note holder. I'm the bank. I don't do repairs. People can still work with me and call me, and you know, I want people to talk my folks to like talk to me. But technically, I'm not owning a lot of a lot of these homes that I that I have. Why are you deciding to do that strategy? Why are you essentially seller financing these properties to get rid of them instead of renting them out or just flipping them? For me, even when I got started back when I was telling you that story, selling on payments. Once I learned that that was actually a thing. Selling on payments. And when I learned that I was reading that get rich quick book, and I'm like, oh my God, you can do that. That excited me. I, the, you know, getting rich quick or making this like 40 grand here, 20 grand here, that's awesome. And you need to do that every so often to keep moving forward investing. But that wasn't exciting to me. So I think in my DNA, I wanted cash flow and to put my feet up and keep getting money every month. So for me, it was always, I was always looking for that. But now is different than 18 years ago. 18 years ago, I had to sell more homes for cash. I wasn't making as much money. If I sell a home for cash, I might only make 20 grand. 
or I sell it for 20 grand. If I sell it on payments, I'm going to sell it for the same home for 30 grand plus maybe an interest rate. So I want to make more money and I'm willing to wait. So nowadays I sell mostly on payment because I can afford it. I want to make the most money. Sometimes I get those properties back and I can resell them. I'm selling them to good people. I'm solving a need and really like putting good people in these homes and I'm changing their lives. Like they wouldn't have lived here or went to the school or like owned something if I didn't help them. Not that I'm doing a pat on my back or anything, but I'm just saying like, it's cool. It's amazing to actually help people that don't have 20, 30, 40 grand to actually pay you cash or don't want to go to the bank or can. So in the beginning, I was selling more for cash because I had to. Now I'm selling more on payments because I want to. And also when you're talking about mobile homes in parks, there's so many people that want to make payments. Like, you know, somebody has five grand down, 10 grand down, two grand down. There's a lot of those people, zero down, but there's only a limited amount of folks with cash, 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand. They're, they're out there, but they're fewer and far between. So it's, it's a combination of, I had to sell them. I wanted to sell them that way. I needed to sell them that way. I, I was able to tax time or different times of the year. You're able to sell homes quicker for cash. If it's a double wide three, two, you might sell it quicker for cash. So it's, it's kind of a juggling, especially in the beginning, which are you going to sell for cash? Which can you sell for cash? Because I don't want to run out of money. I don't want other people to run out of money. So what do the terms look like when you sell a property to somebody using seller financing? When you say seller financing, in my mind, it's a specific thing. It's you're selling the home, you've sold the title, you've sold the deed, you're creating a note, you're creating a mortgage or a deed of trust, you have a loan originator, and you're, you're becoming the bank. Now, you can also sell the home without owner financing it. You could sell it with the lease with an option or maybe a rent credit where you're keeping ownership and then selling the ownership at the end. You hold on to the title until the very end. I just wanted to sort of make that mention of owner financing versus selling it with like a lease option. Either way though, you're still looking for the same buyer. You're still looking for the same person that wants to pay you off. They don't want you there anymore. They want to pay you five or 10 years of payments and they're happy to, to actually own something. So which and of those can, are you doing? Oh, both of them. It depends. It depends on the park. It depends if I own the land. It depends what the park will let me do it, what the park will let me do, but all of the above. The paperwork has to be correct, mind you, of course, but some parks want you to sell the home and they want to see that, okay, that person in the home is on the title or is on the deed if you're in New Hampshire or Rhode Island. And then other parks, they say, no, we don't care. You can rent it. You can sell it how you want. So it kind of depends on the park. It kind of depends on how much money I'm getting down. I'll transfer the title there earlier if I'm getting like 25% or more down. But either way, you want the same person, the person that whether you're owner financing it or you're selling it on payment some other how, some other way, it's all just semantics. I mean, it's like the paperwork's different, but ultimately you're looking for that same person, the person that's ethical. They have the ability to pay. They, they're, they're not flaky. They've jumped through all your hoops. They're appreciative. They know this needle in a haystack opportunity that they're getting. And again, they want to pay you off. They want to, you know, they want to give you enough payments so you you are eventually gone. So we do our background checks, we do more than our background checks, and we get down a couple grand, usually between like two to six to seven to eight grand, depending on the home and the condition in the area. And then we're selling on payments. In the beginning of my career, I will admit, and, and I was very or I'm prepping this so you know it's gonna be good. In the beginning of my career, I was younger, I didn't know what I was doing, and I would just put anybody into my property. You know, no background checks. If you got money, I want you to be here. 
And I was selling my homes for way too much money. I was gouging people in prices. The interest rate was admittedly probably too high. And I was setting people up for failure. So I was selling homes and people right now that are not ethical or just they just want to sell it for whatever they want to sell it for. As a mobile home investor, you can really set people up for failure. You can overprice homes and get wrong people into these properties that you know won't afford it. And yeah, could you sell it, quote unquote, sell it for like 50 grand? Yeah, but is that person actually going to pay you? They might stay there a few years, they give you a few grand down, and then they flake out and you got to sell it again. Some people want to do that business and they want to screw people over. And other people, like me, once I learned what I was doing and I didn't want to get these properties back and I wanted to deal with people that wanted to pay me off and be win-win, I think back then it was win-win-lose. So now we're selling for at least five years worth of payments, five to 10 if it's in a park. Uh, we want to get all our money back in six to 12 months. We want to make 300 cash flow. We want to disclose everything, treat the buyers right, treat the sellers right. I think I definitely went off of your question, but I hope that that paints a little bit of a picture. Yeah, that's great. So what are the typical prices that you're selling these properties at? Because I mentioned this before we started recording the show, but the mobile home investing space is a place that I want to get into myself. And I've been looking at them and you can see renovated, nice mobile homes in the New England area where I live, upwards of a hundred grand or more. I've seen them 120 grand. And then you see some that are more like 20, 25, 30. And of course, they're not the same quality. They need some repairs, maintenance, things like that. So that makes sense. But where are you targeting that sales price? It sounds like maybe you could get 70 for a property, but you're choosing to do 50 or 60 so that you have a higher quality buyer. Is that the case? When we sell it? No, I didn't want to make it sound like that. We're not leaving money on the table necessarily. We're not gouging people. If we're taking payments, we're selling for a high retail price. And that's because we're taking payments, we're taking the risk. We are selling on payments for a high retail price. That's on the, sell, on the selling side. And I think you were mentioning on the buying side, like as an investor, you're seeing locally, just like people around the country, if you live in a metro market, you can probably find a mobile home, whether it's from the 80s, 90s, 2000s or newer, you can probably find some mobile homes going for 60 grand, 80 grand, 120 grand. There are some parks, and in some areas, there's more parks than others, but in some parks, they command that value. You know, This year, they have comps that are active and this year alone, we sold 12 properties like this and they go quick. And so you're absolutely right. And there's no way for me to say that that isn't the case. But in those same communities, well, first of all, there's so many communities out there. And whenever I work with folks, we really want to get clarity of the market. I don't just want the folks listening to this podcast to go on Facebook or Craigslist and see, oh, everything's selling for 40 grand or this piece of you know, junk right here for, for 20 grand. This isn't going to work here. Because yes, the stuff online, what you're seeing, people can get some of those prices. Sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Now, does that mean those are bad deals? Maybe, maybe not. Does it mean you can afford those? Maybe, maybe not. Is that something you'd probably want to do for your first deal? Definitely, probably not. Now, when you have clarity on the market and you know what people are selling for, you're right that some people are patient. Every, if you're seeing a home for sale for 60, 80, 100, or 200 grand, if it's in a park, those sellers have time to sell. I mean, obviously, they have time, they know their home's worth money, and they're patient. They want to get what they want to get. Other times when we deal with mobile home people, mobile homes in parks, a number of the folks that we're dealing with as mobile home investors 
are paycheck to paycheck type of folks. And that's not good or bad. I'm not saying that's like a good, bad thing. There are probably people around the country, whether you live in a mobile home or not, you're probably pay, you might be paycheck to pay to paycheck. And it's indicative of people that we help. People can't always pay their bills. They mismanage finances. There's deferred maintenance. There's title problems or ownership issues or their home has to be moved. Nobody can get approved by the park. It's the park selling it. You know, the list goes on. So I don't want you buying that $100,000 home unless you know for sure it's maybe worth 200 and for some reason you can pick it up for 100 which isn't realistic. So I don't want you buying the homes that are 60, 100 grand, 40 grand. The folks that I work with, even in the New England area, even on the West Coast and the coastal areas or the main metro populated areas, that's not the properties I want you buying. I want you buying from folks that are in some type of typical hardship. We have to act quick usually. We're making usually cash offers, payment offers. We're helping people more than just buying their home. They have title problems. They need help moving. We're putting them in some other home. So I definitely agree with you that there are those higher priced homes, but we just really make a reputation for ourselves. And there are people, and it's just me telling this to you because you haven't seen it yet, but there are people that get themselves into trouble. Yeah. I mean, we can go on about why people do and how to get into it. But it's, yeah, there, there's those people that need to sell quick and that's the people we help. We dip, typically don't help as many of those people that are asking 100,000 or 60,000 as much. Yeah. I want to dive into your buying process, your buying criteria, how you find those deals. But before we do, because we were talking about that rent to own or seller financing piece, I want to talk about a little bit more about the terms of those deals. So you mentioned two to eight or $9,000 down what does that look like on a percentage basis of the property they're buying? Maybe it's a $50,000 property. What, what are you requiring for a down payment on that? Are you requiring 20% like a traditional bank would? Or are you looking at a different percentage? And then what are you charging for interest rates? What are you doing for terms? I think you've said five or 10 years. What does that look like? If you're selling on payments, I suppose it depends on like how much money that you need to get back and how quickly. Because if you know, okay, I just spent my last 10 grand or my last five grand or however much getting into this property, I'm sitting on, I have no money now. You basically are sort of backed into a corner where you have to sell for, you don't have to sell for cash, but you should, unless you're just going to wait you know, to do your next deal. But yeah, get that cash back and reinvest it. So sometimes selling on payments isn't the right way to go. Now, I say that because I want to get people that have money down. If you have money down, it shows you have a savings account, you have, you're able to save the money, you're able to work and put money away, and you really want this home. You know, you're willing to put down money, but I will sell homes that are beautiful. I'll also sell homes that are handyman specials. I know how much money I have into each deal, and it's a spectrum. If I'm going to sell a home for $50,000, let's say we're just talking about a two-bedroom, two-bath home in some random park. Well, you can sell that for cash for maybe, let's say, $10,000 just to make it easy. You can sell it on payments for $20,000. You can sell it on payments for probably $30,000, or you can sell it on payments for ten grand. As an investor, you're the captain. You, you can decide how much you want to sell this for. Like I was mentioning, I was gouging people in the beginning. I was selling it overpriced with higher interest than I should have. Nowadays, I don't charge any interest for a mobile home in a park. On land, I do. But in parks, I don't nowadays. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I just don't do that. But I want to say that you know the way I'm selling it, I try to sell for at least five years worth of payments for 300 months of cash flow minimum for five years. And I want to make all my money back in a year or less. 
So five years at 300 a month is, is eight, 18 grand without any interest, plus a small down payment. So the minimum we're selling most of our homes for is 18 grand plus a small down payment. But now how much of a down? Well, A, I don't want to leave money on the table. So can we get more than 300 a month? How much more? And can we sell it for more than 60 months? Well, how much more? And is there a buyer that will pay 100 or 10 years worth of payments? Yes, but how flaky are they? Are they just coming to our property because they can't go anywhere else? Are we gouging people in prices and the only people that are willing to go into our properties are risky people that can't go anywhere else? Or are we selling for a decent amount with a low amount down? So I guess I wanted to focus first that there's a spectrum. We can overprice people and sell to overpriced homes and sell to risky people, or we can sell for less money, give people a better deal, sell for about five to 10 years worth of payments. Where else are people going to buy a home, pay 10 years worth of rent or less and actually own something? So it really depends on how aggressive you want to be, how picky you want to be. You might sell your home and you, you think, oh, I want to get five grand down. But then someone comes to you and says, hey, I got 3,500 and you negotiate and you say, well, okay, 3,500 moves you in. But for the first year, you pay me an extra $150 a month and that makes up for it. And more importantly, I guess one of the last things I'll say about this, we'll talk more obviously, is the one thing that threads all my people together. This is very important. I will take zero down on a home. I mean, it's got to be really got to be like a big handyman special, but I'll take zero down. I don't want to, but I will. The thing that threads my people together now versus like 10 years ago or, or more is that they're humble, they're appreciative, they're sincere, they've jumped through all my hoops, they're appreciative of this needle in a haystack opportunity that they're buying on payments for, to get into a decent home. Plus they have a job, plus you know they've worked for the last couple of years and they can show income. And so it's not so much of a down payment, like I have to get this or I have to do that. I know as an investor, I'm making my money over the long run. I do want to make it back quick, but I also, I care about the person I'm putting in. What's their situation? I want to follow, I don't want to follow my heart. I've been burned doing that too much, but I do care about the person. I want to set them up for success. So it's kind of, it depends. The answer is it depends, but I do want to make my money back is in a year or less. That's what we shoot for. You mentioned that you do the 0%. Why is that? I do that most of the time. So for a mobile home on land, I always charge interest. For a mobile home in parks, I stop charging interest most of the time. And the reason is because I found that I can increase the price and I can tell people I'm not charging interest. I've turned a negative into a positive because people like that. Yeah, I increased the price, but everything's going towards principal. There's no fine print. I'm making it easy for myself. I don't have to give people a 1098 at the end of the year for the mortgage interest. My accounting's easier. It's simpler for them. So most of the time I'm making the same, it's easier. And that's why I started doing it. And I just was like, I was gouging people before and it was just, I didn't feel right. But ultimately I didn't notice a change. It's easier for people to understand. People liked it and they still do. But sometimes I do charge interest if I'm having trouble selling because the price appears to be high, which isn't usually the case. But if that does happen, I'll lower the price and then I'll just put an interest rate of seven to 10% on and it gets me back to the price I want. I can advertise it lower. So do you calculate you know, over five or 10 years, this is what I would earn in interest if I charged my target interest rate? So instead of charging that as interest, I'll tack that amount onto the selling price and then go to 0%. I know this might be an interesting analogy, but I know car dealerships do that a lot is they'll charge 0% interest, increase the price of the car so that they can claim 0%. So I'm curious, is that the same type of thing you're doing with your mobile homes? 
if not more. Yep. Very interesting. So where is your actual cash flow coming from? Is it basically you bought the property in cash, so you have no debt service costs or anything like that? So everything you're getting in payment from that person is essentially cash flow, minus maybe maintenance, repairs, capex, things like that. Yes, fifteen to twenty-five percent of the time, we're buying on on payments as well. So sometimes there will be a debt a debt service, or maybe you're borrowing the money hypothetically from somebody, but. I'd say about 20% of the time, roughly, we are purchasing with payments. You know, not, not every seller can take payments, but some do, and we can kind of steer sellers towards payments sometimes. But no, you're correct. After we make back our, our initial investment, it's a profit, and then we, we can get the home back and we can resell it again occasionally. And- so you also mentioned that you're selling some properties for as low as 18000 20000 How do you buy properties below that price, renovate them, fix them up, and then sell them for those dollar amounts and still make money? Well, you bring up the question, if you can't do that, do you just not do the deal? I mean, if we have to buy it for, let's say we're talking about one of those more higher end parks where it does command a higher priced home, people with money, people that have cash, people that you can sell it for a much higher down payment. You can sell it for 10 years or more. So you can certainly get into those other priced homes. I mean, I don't definitely don't want to... And that's something you should do. I mean, if you if the numbers make sense, you might not be making your money back in a year. It might take two years to get your money back. But do you have another eight years of cash flow after that? That, that would still make sense. And going back to your question about the minimum deal we do being five years, that's not exactly correct because you have some buyers that say, listen, I don't want to pay you for the next five years. I'll give you 600 a month and let's just get this off a lot. Let's get this done a lot sooner. Or I'll give you a thousand a month and let's get this done real soon. So you have some people that don't want to do that. Or if we're selling like an old 1970 something, which is okay, but we're selling it as a handyman special, we know we're not going to get five years of payments probably. So I don't want to say you have to sell it for this long. We just have to be realistic on what we can sell it for. So there's, you know, I just wanted to bring that up first. But to make the numbers work, you have to know what you can sell it for first. So you have to know what buyers are paying for cash, what they have paid, what they're willing to pay. And then you can sort of work backwards to say, well, okay, this is much how much buyers are paying. These are how much repairs the home needs. This is all the other numbers that may go into the deal. What can I buy it at? What's my maximum dollar amount that I, where I can get my money back in a year? And then, okay, well, the seller isn't anywhere close to that price. Do I just walk away? Do I stand firm? Do I negotiate and become emotional and keep working my way up? And then I lose profit, my margins go down, or do I go to the next park? You have easily over a hundred parks. I want to say over like 250 parks within a 50 mile radius of So nobody listening to this podcast should go out to their first or second or fifth or 10th park and buy their first home. You should have a lot more clarity. We need to really understand who's out there. What are they selling? Why are they selling? Let's make offers to most of those people and move forward with the path of least resistance. How am I going to make my money back quicker? What repairs are going into these homes? Yes, this guy over here is fairly motivated, but these two people over here, it's a way better, quicker deal. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're flipping a mobile home or even just renting one out and it's in a park that you don't own, what do you do if the park owners deny entry to their park to the people that are trying to buy your home? My first thought is find out why that is because you and the owner or you and the manager should be on the same page and wavelength. It should not be a surprise about why you're there or this shouldn't be like at the last minute, like, oh, that's weird that they're stopping my people. 
So you should understand, hey, what's the deal? Maybe those people are, they were driving too fast. Maybe they were swearing to the security guard, or maybe there's a valid reason. Now, if they're being malicious or two-faced, or they said that they were cool with you and now they're not all of a sudden, that's a different story. And so as the title owner or as the mobile home owner, you can pull it out of there if you want to. We will try to reason with the park. They don't want the home removed typically. They want us to keep paying lot rent. We're going to take it in like steps, but that's the sort of the starting process of it. And then depending on what they say, we would go kind of escalate the situation. But if you have like a specific example, I'd love to kind of play that out, but that doesn't happen. You mentioned the lot rent. Is the tenant or the buyer of your property paying the lot rent directly to the mobile home park or are they paying you the full amount, both what they owe you as well as the park, and then you make that payment? Almost everyone is paying me, at least for the first two years, and I'll explain why, but for the first two years, I want them paying me and then I will divvy up the uh, lot rent, the payment to me, any late fees, but I want, I trust me to pay the lot rent. And if I don't get their payment in time, I'm still making that lot rent payment. One of the reasons we're there and the managers want to deal with us is because we make their life easier. You're not going to have to think of payment coming to you every month. And we can call the manager up and say, hey, Pam, you know, did you get my check? And oh, well, hey, since we're talking, you know, how are you doing? Are you feeling okay with this virus? Do you have anything else for sale? Is anybody in trouble? So it gives you another reason to talk to the manager. But I trust me more than I trust my buyers, even though I trust my buyers, because we've gotten burned by letting people pay themselves. Now, I will say in maybe 5% of parks or less, the owner or the manager of the park will say, hey, it's cool what you're doing, but the only thing that we're putting our foot down is that person in your home, the payments have to come from them. Most parks don't care. The payment can come from wherever as long as it's a good payment. But some parks, few, the vast, vast minority will say, no, we actually care. And it has to come from the people inside. So in that case, I do things differently. But normally I'm taking full payment for two years, make sure they're on time, they're good payers. Then after two years, I send people a letter. Congratulations, you are one step closer to owning your home. Now you have the luxury of making two payments, one to me or my company and one to the park. That's interesting because, and of course you have far more mobile home experience than I do. But the little bit that I've, I've learned and that I've talked to, I've heard that oftentimes mobile home parks don't want the payment from the buyer of the property. They want whoever owns the title, whoever actually is the owner of that property to actually make that lot rent payment. That's not a deal breaker either way. I'd have to say that this is something good that we're talking about. We don't want to make everybody listening to my voice. We don't want to make skinny deals. We don't want to make rash decisions, dumb decisions, but we can always still be like proactive and eager and hungry and open minded because my attitude when I'm dealing with the park is okay, park, you say jump and I'll say how high. You know, I want to work with you. I'm willing to jump through your hoops. Doesn't mean I'm going to overpay or do anything stupid. But if the park wants me to do that, it's like, you know, sure, you know, we'll figure it out. You know, that's, That'd be ridiculous if I just killed the deal because of that reason. Do you charge a premium on top of their rent when you have to be the one to make the payment? Man, that's a good idea. <laughs> no, you no, could squeeze out some extra margin there. Well, you're 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 right. There's a couple things I do to squeeze out a little bit extra margin. I don't know the people in my homes. You get I shouldn't do this, but I get attached to them. Some of them, and they're good people. And no, it's. No, I don't care about that. Or I just never thought of that, to be honest with you. But that is an interesting, we'll do it for you for an extra couple of bucks. Yeah, it would add up. I mean, it would definitely add up. 
Yeah. And maybe, I mean, not even necessarily as like a service fee, but just to saying like, this is the lot rent, it's this much. And you know that it's you know $50 less than what you're telling them. And then you can squeeze out that extra profit. But to your point, I would probably tend to agree that that's not worth it. Even if it's, it's probably not going to be much, you could probably get 25, 50, hundred bucks more, but it's, is it really worth it? And then the lot rent isn't a secret. I mean, those people are probably going to find out what the lot rent is. And if they end up finding out that you're charging them a premium, that's probably going to tarnish the relationship a little bit, I'd assume. Typically, yeah, it, 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 it does. And $10 to some folks is more than $10 to other folks. And we're just, I don't know, this business is so, you really get humbled and maybe you stay humble or maybe it's, I guess it's your personality, but this business sort of humbles you. You know, you're dealing with people that they're working so that we don't have to. I mean, I, I want to set my people up for success. I want good people. So are mobile homes a good alternative for new investors to get started or might it be better for them to start off with a more traditional property first? There's so many ways that people can make money in real estate, multifamily, single family and strategies, niches, sub niches. It's interesting, even with mobile homes, the sub niches within mobile home investing, but that's not right for everybody. I mean, some people, if you don't want to get started with mobile homes, you might get want to get started with a mobile home park or you feel comfortable doing something else. I'd say it's more of the local supply and demand, what you want to start getting into, what excites you, what you're maybe passionate about and what's realistic. How much capital do you have? How much knowledge do you have? Mobile homes in parks and on private land, they do offer something currently, and this may change in the future, but currently they do offer pros and cons. We can get into these properties for not that much money. There's not too much competition. We're dealing with people that they need our help on the buying side when we're buying these homes, they're struggling. And when we sell homes, we're selling to good, hardworking people as well. And just seeing that like struggle and helping people, and it's really cool. It kind of keeps you humbled and grounded in this business. Of course, I mean it's going to vary significantly, you know, for every property where you're buying, things like that. But just in general, when you say you're getting into these properties for less money, what are you able to acquire a property at for a price? And then generally, what does it cost to renovate it? So what are your all-in costs for a typical property so that someone who's new to investing can try to get a gauge as to if this might be plausible for them? And then also maybe talk to us about how you're funding that. Are you able to use some bank financing if they don't have all of the money that they need to buy it cash? What does that whole process look like? Across the country, in every state, we are purchasing homes the acquisition costs, the holding costs, the repairs, the labor, the marketing when we sell it in all states from the coast and inland. Well, maybe not so much on the coast, but we are purchasing properties all in under 10,000 acquisition, holding, labor, material. We're selling it. We want to get all our money back. Like I said, six to 12 months or less, 300 minimum cash flow, five years minimum when we sell it. That's every state. Now, is that in your backyard? Is that like next door? Maybe not. You might have to drive 20 or 30 miles to get to certain areas, to get to those lower priced homes or to find a home that's currently available right now. And that's a snapshot in time. Next week, there'll be new sellers the week after that, the month after that. So around the country, we're definitely buying them an all in under 10 grand. But does that mean that's what we're only doing? No, you can be all in for under 20 and now you sell it for, well, maybe that's a home you can sell for cash and double your money, or it's a home you can sell with FHA or conventional finance. Or you get a bigger down payment and you make your money back in 18 months or 20 months. I will say this if you're over 10 grand, I want you selling the home typically for more than five years worth of payment. If you're into a home for for 10 grand, and that might not sound like a lot to, to a lot of people, but for a mobile home, that's a lot. 
If you're into it for more than 10 grand, I usually want you selling for eight to 10 years worth of payments because it's a nicer home. We're paying more for it. We have more into it. You know, you have under 20,000 into it. And even if you have more than 20,000, there's some people I work with on the coastal areas that they buy homes, they fix them up, they have 50 grand into them, and they're selling them for 80 grand or 100 grand cash or bank financing. If you're ever into a home more than 20 grand, in my opinion, get out of it. Sell it for cash. Unless you can get a big fat down payment and get all your money back still in a year, if you're over a 20 grand, get your money back out. And ideally, you should. You shouldn't be over 20 grand on a junky older home that you can only sell on payments. Mobile homes are forgiving, but don't just go out there, the people listening to this, and buy. You know, you talk the person down from 40 grand down to 20 grand. You think you're the best negotiator ever. That's not necessarily the case. We really have to be crystal clear on what you can resell before you make any offers or buy anything. Those are the numbers in every state under 10 grand, and then it kind of goes up from there. So if you could see my face right now as we're recording this, you would see that I had a surprised look on my face when you said all in for under 10 grand because I find that to be very interesting. And I want to know, how are you able to find those deals? Are they off market? Are you, do you have relationships with the mobile home park owners so you're able to get those properties that way? Are you buying them off the MLS or something similar? How are you able to an acquire a property for that little price and renovate it? Because I'm assuming you have to buy the property for maybe two, $3,000, maybe four, and then put six, seven into it for renovations, maybe less, something along those lines. So how are you finding properties for that cheap? I'm laughing because you were saying that you find it interesting. Be real. You say I'm lying. You can just tell me the truth. <laughs> I followed your, your material. I know what you've done. So I 100% believe you. It blows my mind because again, we talked about this a little bit before the show. I've been talking to some people in the mobile home park space. And for the last few months, I'm trying to get involved in it. And I've been looking, you know, not super diligently, but I can't find anything anywhere near that price in my area. So I'm curious, how are you able to do that? First, I want to sort of mention you know, the job of a wholesaler. If you're a wholesaler, you, your job is to find good deals and that's where you lock in your profit. You found it first or you negotiated it and you, you got that contract first. That's where a wholesaler locks in their profit. So I say that because you're getting a, a kind of a clear picture of the market. I mentioned earlier on that I don't just want people going to Facebook or Craigslist and seeing, okay, well, this is who I can choose from. And I mean, I guess out of all these people, I'm going to go with this person and this person and this person. It's absolutely what you said. It's a relationship with other investors, relation, talking to people and following up. It's a combination of all that. And it's not those prices. If people have time and they're patient and they're asking a retail price, there's a lot of those folks out there, of course. A lot of people will go through their life and never need the help of an investor in just in general, cars, homes, whatever. But some people, they do for a variety of reasons. Some people are more logical and some people are less logical or more emotional. So to answer your question, it's not just one thing that we do to advertise or market. When I work with folks, we really try hard to sort of dominate the local market. I want people to know who you are and for you to have relationships with enough people that you have sort of a spider web across your entire, maybe not state, obviously, but within like a 50 mile radius of where you are, you have this big spider web where you know what's going on. You have relationships out there and it takes a while. It takes around nine to 10 months that I've seen if you're doing things daily where you're for the first nine or 10 months, you're making most of the call. It's you doing the work because no one really knows who you are or what you do. After 9, 10, 11 months, now we're starting to see more people know who you are. They know what you do. You have more of a reputation. 
we're not doing every deal. We're only doing the deals that are quite profitable. So you learn more about your market. You learn more about your numbers. You can start brokering homes. You can start wholesaling homes as well. And you mentioned before about, I wanted to talk about this. I'm glad you brought this back up because you mentioned about fixing the homes up. You assume that we're buying the home for two or three grand. We're putting six to eight grand in it and we're selling it. And by the way, six to eight grand in a mobile home, it goes a long way. Depends on who you have repairing it. They could be just screwing you with the price, but six to eight grand should go a long way in a mobile home. We are not always fixing these homes up to the nine. We're not always selling homes for the top dollar that we can get down. Even if I sell a handyman special, I'm making the quote fingers right now. Even if we sell a handyman special, and it may or may not be a handyman special, it's very livable, or maybe it's not as livable. But when you sell a home on payments, as long as you, well, you don't have to disclose everything, but you should disclose everything. You don't have to fix these homes up to the nine. I've learned over the last 18 years that there are certain repairs that the bulk of society is going to turn around and run the other way. They don't want any part of those repairs. There's mold, there's soft spots, there's bugs, there's gross smells. Most of society is not going to be cool with that. But if it's more like, well, I got to paint the home or I got to like, I got to freshen up the carpets or like the home is used or it's lived in, but it's very livable and it's just used because it's a used home. Let's face it. That's fine. So you don't have to put as much repairs in. You do have to fix certain things. And it depends if you're selling on payments or cash. If you sell for cash, you want to fix it up nicer. But if you're selling on payments, you don't have to fix everything up that you think that you would. We don't have to get these to a, well, we want them to be livable, but they don't have to be quote unquote rent ready. One might think of rent ready. It can be below that rent ready level. So because you're able to buy these properties for such a small dollar amount, are they older properties typically? Yes. We are absolutely purchasing homes newer from the 2000s, but I will say the bulk of our properties are from the 90s, 80s, early 2000s, but, but, but absolutely in the 70s, nothing wrong with that. I've been through homes from the 2000s that look way worse than homes from the 70s. That's how you take care of it and case by case, even the 60s. But then again, the, the homes are smaller, they're narrower, you can only sell them for a finite amount. There's things that change, but no, the, the age, yeah, I'll be, I'm, I'm open to any age. Unless I have to move it, then I'm a little pickier. But yeah, to answer your questions, 90s, 80s, early 2000s, 70s is cool too. So it sounds like you can pick most ages as long as the numbers make sense and the bones of the property are pretty good, but it looks like you'll probably want to be in the 90s, 2000s if you can. If not, 80s is okay. And then you can even go down to the 70s if, if you have to, to, to find a deal. Would you agree with that? I would. There's things to look out for and there's pros and cons, but they're, you know, you're dealing with a home that's, it's the roof, it's the walls, it's the plumbing, it's the electrical, it's the HVAC potentially, and all the other systems. I mean, it's there, you know, you're, and it's not just the home, it's the park, it's the location, the time of the year, the application process. But with the homes, you're, you're, you're correct. If someone new to real estate does decide to get into mobile homes, whether it be because they want to get into it with less initial capital, or they really enjoy our conversation and they think that this is a great way for them to start, or maybe just a completely different reason, what are some of the most important things for them to look out for in their first deal? What do new mobile home investors often miss? I would say, if I'm going to categorize these, I'll say quickly that there's four like umbrella categories where untrained mobile home investors make mistakes. 
This is for mobile homes in parks. There's four like umbrella areas. You can overpay for the home, which you just pay too much. And it might still be profitable, but how long are you going to take to get your money back? So you just overpay for the home. You put too much repairs into the home, which sort of is the same problem. You have too much money overall into the home. And I say too much money, which is kind of a, well, how much is too much money? And in my opinion, it's, well, how long is it going to take you to get that money back? Because I want you to get it back in a year or less. So people pay too much. People put too much money into the home. The third umbrella area where people make mistakes is that they don't sell it for enough. Like instead of selling it for five, six years, they sell it for five years. You can leave money on the table, like two, three, four years of payments because you don't know. And you just, the difference between saying one thing with your breath and saying something else causes you thousands of dollars of cash flow over the next year, you know, many years with a buyer that's equally as happy. They would have been happy paying you eight years. Now they're paying you five. Of course, they're happy paying you five, but they didn't, you know, it's anyway, leaving money on the table. That's the third mistake. And the fourth mistake is if you're selling in a payments, putting the wrong people in your home. I made this mistake. I'm a slow learner. It took me like four years to stop putting the wrong people in my home because you can do everything else right. You buy it right. You fix it up right. You get, you know, you, you know what you're selling it for. I don't want to use this as an example, but you follow your heart. There's been a couple of times where I've, I've had a couple choices of who to sell to. And do I go with the more logical business path or do I follow my heart and give these folks like a fifth chance in life? And of course, I follow my heart and I got burned. So it's putting the wrong people into the homes. That's sort of the four, if I have to answer quickly, that's the four main areas where people like untrained people would make mistakes. So you talk about putting the wrong people into the homes. What does that mean? What makes someone quote unquote wrong? Is it their credit score? Is it their job history, background checks? Are those the same type of things you're looking at for a mobile home as you would for a traditional rental? Yes. And more. I am dabbling more and more with rent with rentals now. And I put the renters through the same hurdles and hoops that I make people jump through. Something I learned in the five years I, well, like I said, four or five years. And when I first started this business, I was, I had a hundred percent default rate, a hundred percent for the first four to five years of people I put in my homes. No one paid me off. Like, every, I mean, they, they would stay there a couple of years. Some people only like six months, but people would leave. And I only had to do two, one eviction really well, two evictions technically. So I did two evictions and I realized when people can't pay, they usually can't stay. You know, if they're embarrassed about the situation, they don't want to pay. They realize they overpaid for it or like they're, they're, they're only going to damage your places if they typically, if they feel vindictive, if they're angry with you, you lied to them. So I mentioned that because I have a great deal of experience selling to the wrong people. And it's not so much the wrong people. It's like those people were good people. And maybe it just wasn't the right time in their life to actually own something. Because I think what a statistic is we move every like a couple of years anyway. We're selling these homes for, I've been saying over a couple of times on this podcast, five years minimum. If you put an ad out in the paper or online and you are advertising owner finance, rent to own, no banks needed, you're going to get a lot of calls and nine, I'm just making up a number here, but I think it's pretty close. 97% of people that you deal with, you might want to go out and have a drink and they're funny and they're cool, but you do not want to get into a five-year relationship with them where they're paying you money and they owe you money. So it's just important to know that, that for every mobile home we buy, we only have to sell to one person. We don't have to sell to 50 people. So I want to get the right person in there. So in my opinion, the, the right buyer or a low-risk buyer, I do look at their credit. I do look at their job history. I do look at their income. I do look at their debt. I do look at their, I do look, I do call for references. 
I do like a normal credit check and background check. And more importantly, what I've learned over the years is it's not just the background check. Usually people are, you know, usually you can tell a lot by a background check, plus going on Facebook, checking out their current home that they live in now. What does it look like? But it's also, and this took me years to like understand and be confident about, I want to continue. I don't want to just take one application and then approve my people. I want to take one application, then I want to take another, or I want to ask them for something else. Well, now I need your social security card. Now I need this. Now I need you to do one other thing. Now can you pull a credit report on yourself and then send it over? I want to make people jump through hoops. I almost kind of want to poke the bear. Because if you think about it, I'm selling these homes usually for a low amount down. If I can get 30% down, I'm more flexible and I'll, I'll look the other way on stuff. But if I'm only getting two, three, four, five thousand dollars down, I want to make people jump through my hoops. Because again, I'm looking for humble, sincere people that they know this needle in a haystack opportunity. They're saying, John, what do I have to do? What do I have to give you to make this work? You need this, here you go. You need this, here you go. I'm not looking for people that dodge my questions, don't call me back, have an excuse, or they they become like, oh, why do I need to do that? I've tried to do this before and I never had to put in this kind of stuff. And it's like, hey, that may not be somebody that I want to deal with. If if already in our relationship, you're getting snippy towards me. So it's a combination of a lot of background checks and then also just, yeah, how the attitude of the person and of course, how much down they have and do they have the ability to make these repairs? Are they just over-promising you stuff? What I just said took maybe five minutes to say, and it's a lot of stuff and it's it's a pain, but it's worth it. I would rather have my properties empty than have a risky or shady person in there. I've learned enough and I'm confident. It took me 18 years. I'm confident to say that. So I'm, I do realize what I said was pretty thorough. It seemed like a high peak or mountain to maybe climb, but it's worth it. Yeah. To me, it's worth it. There's been a couple of times throughout this podcast so far that John has talked about something that I know I'm personally going to go back and listen to probably two times, three times, maybe four times, You know, specifically the criteria that he's looking for for cash flow, his return payback period, things like that. Go back, listen to that again. Go back and listen to what he just said again about his criteria for accepting potential buyers. He said it's heavy information and it is. So go back, listen to it a couple of times if you have to, take notes, really make sure you understand it. And you mentioned you'd rather let it sit vacant. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I wanted to ask that. In a mobile home, if you decide to let it sit vacant for a little while because you can't find that perfect person you really want to sell it to, or maybe you just don't have the demand that you expected, what are the typical holding costs that you'll have? Do you have taxes? Do you have to pay the lot rent? What do those types of fees look like? You should have the demand that you expect because prior to closing, yeah, it should not be. You, you, you may even want to have kind of a buyer's list or you know buyers before you... Yeah, you should have the demand that you think. But as far as fees go, it depends. Like most things in real estate, it depends. The park, you may have negotiated free lot rent, discounted lot rent. You may have to pay back the park five months of lot rent that the people you're buying it from haven't even paid. You may have to move the home or you may have to do more repairs because the park wants you to fix up the outside. If the electricity hasn't been on for a while, maybe you have to get the home inspected and then do other repairs that way. But I'd say for the most part, I mean, the normal holding costs are the lot rent to the park, electricity, possibly gas or propane or water, if that's not included by the park. And if any holding cost, if you have, or any uh, debt service, if you're paying the seller, any monthly payments, but you should really negotiate any payments to the seller for like starting until you put a buyer in there. But really it's mostly lot rent, mostly lot. So to wrap up the show, I don't think we could record a podcast 
when we are now, late April, without at least talking about the coronavirus pandemic for a minute. So we've been into it for about five or six weeks now. How has this impacted mobile home investing? Is it an asset class that you expect to perform better or worse than traditional properties and strategies in times of crisis? That's a good question. I'm, I'm liking it to the, 20, the 2008 crash, 2009 crash. And there's some similarities and there's some differences. First of all, I think it's going to be, that might sound biased, but I think we're going to be sitting very well as individual mobile home investors. Or if you're buying the complete parks, you're going to be, do, you're going to be sitting okay as mobile home investors. There's going to be a lot of pain. There already is starting to be hurt and pain in the market. We're already starting to see, and this is just the first month. By the way, all my people that when I, I'm selling homes on payments, April's been great. I don't know how May or June or July is going to be, but people have been, I've had more people pay this month than usual. So it's, I'm not seeing any sort of like wave of everybody can't pay and it's, you know, I'm going out of business. We are dealing with affordable homes. We're typically selling these homes as well. Remember, if people don't pay us, not only are they losing their home, but they get out of this whole deal. Like they're losing the opportunity to actually buy something. Everything they've put into this home, now they have the potential of losing it. So I haven't been seeing, and hey, in, in three months or six months, that may change. But I haven't been seeing people not being able to pay with regards to my homes and selling on payments. I have been seeing, and this is very early on, but I've been seeing an, an uptick of people that need to sell. Well, that's not true. Across the country, there's a, a decrease in sellers. Depending on where you are, there's between like 20 and 40% less sellers because people are just holding on to their homes. If they don't have to sell, they don't want to show them. They don't want people in their properties. They're not sure what's going to happen. They're waking, waiting to this shakes out, but there's still sellers, but there's still sellers in the market. Now, if you don't have to sell, you don't necessarily want to sell, but we have been seeing an uptick because I said that we're seeing more sellers. What I meant is we're seeing more sellers, lower total overall, but we have been seeing an uptick across the country of people needing to sell due to coronavirus reason. They either need to take care of a relative that's in another state. They thought they had their home sold and then the buyer flaked out because they're holding on to their money. And now the sellers are like, crap, I need to sell even. I thought I had a buyer. Now I don't. Now I need to sell even quicker. Or they've directly lost their job. They're, they're people that are living in a mobile home, paycheck to paycheck. They're working at you know a diner or a restaurant. They lose their job and now they need to sell. And we've been seeing that already. People dropping their prices from the 20s down to the under 10,000 because they need to sell their home quicker. They're losing their home. They're behind on payments. So there, it's already been a tick up in you know people needing to sell, but I don't want to make it sound like, okay, as a mobile home investor, we're going to start seeing people that need to sell more, which we are. And really foreclosures haven't even started because people, you're not even allowed to, I don't think, across most of the states. And we, I don't even think we've seen the real wave coming is what I'm getting at. But the difference between now and 2009, when we had the same sort of different fears, but you know similar, the difference is mobile homes now there's more people looking. There's more investors looking at the mobile homes and the prices are higher. Single family homes have gone up in price most areas around the country, pushing mobile home prices higher as well. So the difference between 08 and 09 versus today is that there's more buyers. So what I think is going to happen is we are going to see an increase in sellers, but don't think if you're listening to this podcast that, okay, I'm going to make some really sweet deals like even more amazing than we usually do. I don't think that's going to be the case because you're still going to have the buyers there. There's going to be more sellers. They're going to have hardships, but we're still going to have to pay the normal amounts we do. We're still going to make our money back. When I said, 
We're not going to get like extra sweet deals, I don't think. Sometimes we will, but I do think there's going to be a, a wave, but then we, we still have to act quick. Some things have changed, some things haven't. I do think there'll be this wave, but we're still going to have to yeah, have a reputation, act quick, know our numbers, still resell on payments probably. There might be less cash buyers out there, but there'll still be some. So some things will change, but I do think we're going to be sitting pretty well as individual mobile home investors. It's funny you mentioned that you've had good payments in April. I have with my portfolio as well. I'm not in the mobile home space yet. I've mentioned that a couple of times throughout the show, but my traditional rentals, we got paid, I think, a week or two early in April, and we got paid like three weeks early in May for everyone. We're already fully paid through May. And I was, I said to my business partner, I said, what is going on? We've never been paid this well in ever. So I, I don't know what's going on, but we've been having great, great payment history as well. John, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait to dive into the mobile home space myself. I'm going to continue studying it. I'm going to do it soon. 2020 might be the year. I hope everybody listening to the show today enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and I'm sure they will. For those that want to connect with you further, where can they go to find you? Well, I'm sure all over the internet, but mobilehomeinvesting.net is a great place for free resources, mobile home videos, some paperwork, scripts, just how to, you can reach me there as well, but mobilehomeinvesting.net. Of course, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for everyone listening today to go check it out. John, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everybody. I hope this was helpful. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.